0: Welcome, everybody. I will preach, but not just yet. So, we're going to have communion. So, there should be, right in front of you, or at least not for the people in the front row, there should be on that little rack in front of you a communion cup with a wafer. So, why don't you get one? Actually, we're going to, I need one. (laughs) That's fine. Thank you. So, we don't. get an opportunity sometimes to do this as frequently as we would like, but communion is a very interesting thing. I say interesting only because there is no amount of time that we could probably devote to fully cover the significance of communion. So I'm going to do that today, not in terms of the breadth of it, but really to start up with this question is, you know, what is this about? It is... You can call it a ritual. You can call it a religious ordinance. I think that's a term that is used. And it's actually a good question because, look, we have kids. Some of you have children. And I think it's actually a really good thing for you to explain to your children exactly what is this about. And I think we all as children of God should have some at least measure of understanding of the reality of it in a way that goes far beyond a ritual. So I want to talk about it before we do that. And these are some things. As I said, the the topic is so broad. And we could speak, we could devote hours and hours upon it. But there are major themes, I believe, that are invoked when you think of the Lord's Supper. Communion. And, And one of these is, it's a memorial. And I think you all can understand the significance of a memorial. Because he said, do this in remembrance of me. To remember something it's a memorial and there's some aspect of a memorial that certainly to repeat it in words is significant but where there is a physical action also invoked as part of that memorial even more so so that's first thing it's a memorial second it's an exhibition and you say well what does that mean well as we know what it says, it says, for this is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And that word proclaim is actually, many instances in the New Testament, is actually preach. So to actually do this, you actually, in effect, are preaching. You, effect, are making a proclamation and it is an exhibition because it's a public thing. And, What are you proclaiming? You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes because he is returning. Of that, you can be sure. So we have a privilege when we take communion as part of this exhibition that we are proclaiming, we are preaching, we are exhibiting something because he's coming back. And that I trust even as I speak about that there's a reality that begins to invade in your heart about some aspect of what you could term a ritual. Third, it's literally communion. It's friendship. You know, part of the spirit that we have within us, one of the parts is fellowship, by which you commune with God. In John 6, 56, he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It is hard to even understand what seems a small thing and yet speaks of something great in the reality of the spirit of us in him and him in us, it's fellowship. There's an aspect, fourth, there's a covenant, covenanting. It says this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It defines the very way that we relate to him and he with us. I wrote this down, and it says, I got this, I can't remember where, but it says, as part of this notion of covenanting, it says, God becomes yours, and you become his, so that you are forever to be one of those that belong wholly to him. To relate to him, and for him to relate to us, it's always by the basis of covenant. It is not by the whims of feelings, It is a covenant cut by blood and it is his. And lastly, Thanksgiving. And having said all of those memorial, exhibition, communion, covenanting, in the end it's Thanksgiving. So that's what we're gonna do. So if you have one, if you can skillfully remove the top portion See, I already failed on that part. So we're gonna take this together, corporately. I don't have a flat thing to put it on, so well, I guess I do. Spread, representing his body. And he said, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And we know what the word says. He was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. It was upon him. said, by his wounds we are healed. Father, we receive this in faith, Healing by your wounds. Thank you, Lord. And he took the cup and he said, It is by his blood by which we have a new covenant. And the word says to examine yourselves. And we can examine ourselves, and we can find that we are found wanting. That there is nothing of ourselves that can produce righteousness. Nothing. Upon examination, we see that it is his blood that was inspected. And because of that inspection of his precious blood, we have been presented holy, blameless, and without reproach in his sight. His blood is taken. Lord, I thank you for what you have done on our behalf. And we receive your life in us, your life eternal in us, with thanks, with thanks. Thank you, Lord. Amen, amen, just give me a minute, he is good, so having already preached and you with me, we'll preach again, all right. You would just close your eyes. There's no need to rush. Lord, I just thank you again for what you have given to us to remember you by. I thank you for the reality of it. I thank you for your very presence. I thank you that this communion with you colors everything we know of you and how we relate to you and how you relate to us, how you see us wholly, blameless without any blemish because of your blood that has been inspected on our behalf so i do thank you lord i thank you lord thank you amen <sighs> Okay. It is good to see you. It is good to be here. It is good to be with him. So, what I have planned to share with you, and I do, I will, I'm just taking my time. <laughs> And if I were to put a title on this message, it is stability of your times. And there's going to be a few things that I'm going to piece together, but we're going to start. And they're going to put it up. They've been newly trained to do so. But in Isaiah chapter 33, verse six, it says this. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times. And the strength of salvation, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. And Isaiah chapter 33, just to give you some context, it was actually a prophetic word that was given in about 700 BC. And it was where it was the time of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, and the city of Jerusalem was under siege from the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. And it was not going well for the Israelites to put it mildly. There was their land was under siege. They had actually already tried to enlist the help of Egypt by tribute to Egypt that was going to fail. And now the day of reckoning of the king of Sennacherib with 185,000 troops was about to lay siege. That's the context of this verse. And there was so much that was hanging in the balance, so much that you could say was unknown, unsure, and everything in the mind's eye of the king as well as his people did not portend well, to put it mildly. And this prophetic word comes forth. I'll read it again wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation the fear of the Lord is his treasure to have taken communion is a part of that strength of salvation to understand covenant so this verse and I think we all can relate to this, there's anything about our times, that there's so much we could say, one thing we wouldn't say is that it's stable. That's probably not a word that you would use currently. You, if you're a normal person, and I'm not talking about super spiritual things at this point, Just, just be a person right now, that everything you would naturally think, see, feel, project out, is not stability. So, but it says wisdom and knowledge will be the stability for your times. So to do so, we're actually gonna go in reverse order and it says in the end, it says the fear of the Lord is his treasure. And it's a very interesting way that it was kind of a tagline at the end. The fear of the Lord, and Clayton's already preached or touched upon the fear of the Lord. And there's many things you can think about the fear of the Lord, but it calls it his treasure. And there's some aspect of the fear of the Lord, if it is his treasure, as we know, there's certain things that he desires for us to search out. The treasures of his kingdom is something that is being put upon us as a responsibility to search out. It is the glory of kings, as they say, to search out a matter. So the fear of the Lord is to be searched out. That's our responsibility. And it's a very confusing thing for people when we actually begin to speak about the fear of the Lord, because it is very much misunderstood. And why is it misunderstood? Well, number one, it confuses, or you can even say conflates multiple ideas. See, we had a beautiful time of just taking communion as part of this new covenant that we stand in, in which we live, in how we relate. But for those, you have to appreciate, for those outside of covenant, the fear of the Lord, what does that represent to them? It's fear of punishment. Why is it fear of punishment? Because justice demands it. The nature of sin and iniquity and transgression, by justice, it demands punishment. So for those outside covenant, you cannot blame them. That to imagine a God, a holy set apart God, to actually now understand the fear of the Lord punishment is absolutely and necessarily part of that equation. But it's very different, I would hope, that you could say or think or imagine for those in covenant. But yet, as we know, and it's just part of the unredeemed nature of man that slowly begins to be sanctified, that we carry over concepts from the old that must be replaced by truth into the new. So if you were to sit here as one that has just partaken of communion in fellowship, So, therefore, necessarily in covenant, the fear of punishment has absolutely no relation to the fear of the Lord. For those in covenant, what does it mean? There's an element of reverence, I submit to you, of the fear of the Lord. Certainly in, in Hebrews twelve twenty one, it says, and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Well, he's God. Power, majesty, glory, the mere weightiness of a presence would necessitate such a response. But that is not, most people can imagine a sight and think of fear with respect to punishment again. The weightiness of God by the nature of reverence can only happen with revelation. That's the only way. See, submissiveness, as you think, with respect to power, because, you know, see, the word's very clear. It says every knee will bow, every knee will bow. And the only question is, is it by force, by sheer majesty and weight, or is it because of a willingness to submit? That's the only question, but every knee will bow. So submissiveness is really an expression of the fear of the Lord. And in my words, as I've told to people, he is God and I'm not. It is that simple. And that might sound very theoretical to you, but... I like to live in the real world. So I would hope that you can join me in the real world today, at least for part time. So the question now becomes understanding the fear of the Lord, because as I, my opening proposition is quite misunderstood, actually. See those in covenant, and I cannot repeat that enough. Those of us in covenant have, an, have available to them, an ever-present help in time of need. Psalm 46, verse one. I don't think I could repeat that enough to the point that you would just gladly, easily accept it. You have to work this out. But those in covenant have available an ever-present help in time of need. So, okay, real world, and this may have been your experience because I think we all have been there to a degree. We understand the notion of help, but oftentimes, you know, in our relatively immature stages, that help becomes just a backstop to our poor choices. Because you're in a situation of your own making and it's not going well. And now, oh, I need help. Been there. I see a lot of nods. You've been there. And so God, as our ever-present help, that's not really the point of that verse, by the way. But if you think about it in our normal everyday experience, and we say, well, I've got an emergency of my own making. God, you're my ever-present help now. Help me. That I put into the category. of That is a backstop of your poor choices. It's not what the verse means. See, it's, it is too easy, too easy. And I'm sure you could hear me saying this because I have. Leave me to my own way. I will not heed your call. And that is just a reflection of the old unredeemed man. Because it says, Isaiah 53, verse 6 now, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way. That was the representation of our existence pre-covenant, and now we are under covenant, but that will that is not fully submitted is just echoing what we had echoed prior. See, he has given us our right. It's amazing. We are like to, many people like to think about rights and entitlements. Well, this is actually your right. You have and been given the right to enjoy the harvest of your own choices. That's your right. It's called sowing and reaping right? You have that right. But it need not be. It need not be. So the question becomes, what actually begins to turn you from the inclination to your own way? So this is where I want to get to, because I've asked myself the question, you know, when we speak of the fear of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 11, sevenfold spirits of God, the last one is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And it's a good thing. Nobody's going to say it's a bad thing. And yet the question does become, exactly how does this work? I have these questions. I hope you do. And the best that I know in terms of how do you actually begin to understand that is in Proverbs chapter 2. First five verses. And I'll tell you the key, but I'm going to read it to you first. Proverbs chapter 2. Verse 1 says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then... You may underline that in your Bible. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So for me, in reading that, a light bulb starts to flicker. I wouldn't say it turned on. I would say it flickered. Because in my simple way of reading the scripture, it basically told me the answer. If I want to understand the fear of the Lord, this is somehow has to be true of my experience, and that is a really hard thing. And here's why: what verses one through four basically described, and this is the key. I will say to you, this is best I can understand. Is the key is that you need to look beyond yourselves that there becomes something that dawns upon you that you don't have what you need. And because you don't have what you need, you must look outside of yourself, beyond yourself. And remember the unredeemed man says, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way. And now in this process of actually ending up with an actual understanding of the fear of the Lord, what has to now be true is that now I realize that I don't have, whatever it is I need, whatever situation you're facing, whatever thing of uncertainty into the future, any problem that you think about is big enough for you to deal with. And for most people, it's actually so crippling because it's there every day, this issue. And the only way you can actually come to a resolution, actually get a solution to your problem, it's not you. And that call and that cry begins to rise up so that you would search for it as for silver, as for hidden treasures. And that impetus is the requirement of understanding the fear of the Lord. And it's as easy as just saying, I need you. I need your perspective. I need your answers. And I've tossed this in my mind, I can't tell you how many times. And the only answer I could come up with is that in the mere understanding that I don't have what I need, but you have it, and now I am being called to search it out To cry out for it now begins to do this in my relationship to Him. Is that now I begin to submit myself to everything that He has and knows, and that becomes that process of submission. And if I'm willing to submit, it is someone that I revere. And that now you can understand how. To understand that the fear, Lord, why this is the key to the process. In verse 10, I'm going to skip to verse 10 in chapter 2. And it says, when wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, So this process does result in something is that I I am in such need, I don't have it, and now I call out to you. I search it out, I cry out for it, and now wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul. Now, as I said, you can see how Isaiah 33, verse 6, actually begins to take shape, is that wisdom and knowledge is the stability of your times. But continuing on in verse 11, it says this, discretion will preserve you. After wisdom has entered, knowledge is pleasant to your soul. Discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you. And verse 12, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. And if you were to jump down to verse 16, it actually says this, to deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. This caught my attention the other day, as I was reading this passage. The notion of deliverance, because as I read this passage, what became clear to me in terms of, like in the beginning of revelation, I would say. Because we all like the idea of wisdom. We all like the idea of knowledge and discernment. And if you remember what I actually preached on a little while ago, You know, I talked about some of the realities of the evil one. And it is enough for me to think about. Because in the world that I live in, manipulation is true. Seduction is true. That there is mindshare that is the battleground. And that's just part of just everyday reality. And while I like to think that I could easily see it, recognize it and prevent myself from coming in under it I'm not that confident of myself and what I actually as this verse I read it what actually began to open in my mind was this idea that when wisdom comes in and knowledge is available that that will now deliver you and I'm, I'm speaking a little bit abstractly but let me make it a little bit plainer Seductive speech, as I said, is spoke about to deliver you from the way of of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, or from the seductress who flatters with her words. Seductive speech is cloaked of intent. And the question becomes, would you recognize it? Because it's no different from saying that there is a delicate meal delivered on a platter to you for you to now take it. Seductive speech is manipulative to the core, and it is the way the evil one operates. Because in verses 1 through 5, it's about you calling forth for the answer. Verses 6 through 10 or 6 through 9 spoke about the good path, and then verses 12 and 16 spoke about a diversion from the path. And that's as simple as real life as I can understand it. That in covenant, God has mapped out for you and me his path. And our job in part is just to stay on the path. Righteousness and justice. And it speaks of the crooked path. And we all have found ourselves there at different times. So the question for me has always been, how would I discern perverse speech? How would I discern the perverse spirit behind those words. And this is true for you in your work life, family life, church life, if you're willing to segment it less so. See, Galatians 3, verse 1, says this. I'm going to hurry here. It says, O foolish Gal- Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. And that word bewitched is just an example of manipulative speech actually producing an effect. And in the, our midst, you know, in, in the context of spiritual things, that spirit would desire to promote carnal and suppress the spiritual, promotes theology over revelation It would promote program over supernatural direction. It would promote reasoning over the walk of faith. It would promote legalism over love. See, all of these things are invoked with that perverse spirit that seeks to manipulate and divert. So... The notion of discerning these voices is something that I think about. And I had this, this happened with my son just a little while ago. You know, sometimes your children come to you with questions. You just hope you have answers. And my son came to me and he said, and dad says, I just feel like I want to grow in intimacy with God. And I was wondering if you could help me. That's a great question. And, cause you know, there's theology, right? But he's not looking for theology. And what was it I, I said? Promotes theology over revelation. He's not looking for theology, he's looking for revelation. <laughs> So, of course, as a parent, you're thinking, well, I hope I got answers for you. Because now we're dealing with the real world, not theory. And it was interesting. So the following morning, I was just sitting in our living room, not unlike most mornings. And I was just, I had coffee, and that's always a great thing. But I was just sitting there and just enjoying the time. And I can't even say what it was specifically about the time because I don't want to make it sound super spiritual, but it was just a peaceful time. And I was just, I wasn't like overtly praying or anything like that, but I was enjoying time. And so he walked by and I said, Sam, Sam, come in. I said, sit down. And I said, just sit in the chair. And I just close your eyes. And I just started to talk. Like, not pray, just talk. Simple things. And I said, okay, now open your eyes. And I said, how do you feel? And he says, I feel good. And I said, now let me explain something to you because you walked into this room and I said, you tell me, but this is what I think is just happening for you, is that there's always many voices, many voices telling you many things, trying to manipulate, direct, cloud thinking. I said, you sat down in this chair and all of a sudden all those voices were silent and now there's just one. And it's not my voice, the one voice is him. And I said, that is an example of the intimacy of God. Because what I've learned by experience, just as to, by using this as an example, and this is what we believe as a leadership here. There's always many voices and they're always trying to dictate your emotional state, your belief state, every aspect and there's many voices but when all those voices become quiet because they are now removed from the room and from access to you then there is only one and when that voice speaks when the voice of the Lord can be heard everything changes it has been my experience that when people find themselves in an environment where the voice of the Lord becomes so clear because that's the only voice now that's allowed into the room, it is not unusual that people just begin to weep. And you say, well, why would they do that? It's actually very simple in my mind. Because in an oppressed state, when the voices are just bombarding them with negative thoughts, accusations, worries, fears, and there's no other voice that can actually puncture through that, which is truth. When all those begin to dissipate and disappear, and that one voice of Him in covenant begins to break in, first of all, it's truth. And truth so recognized in freedom. And when that voice begins to register, It immediately begins to touch people in the deepest of places as only he can. And that allows his work, which is an easy one, of fellowship, to begin to break in, to be felt, to be understood. And typically what happens is they can just breathe. That's what it's like. intimacy with God is your birthright. You know, and you know this, the Lord's Prayer, when the disciple says, you know, teach us how to pray. He says, in this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one see that word deliver is actually in a sense that same word that was used in proverbs chapter 2 verses 12 and 16 about to deliver you from the perverse speech and from the seductress same word And that word to deliver is to draw to oneself. Most people think, oh, in some sense, I've been let go. It's like, no, it's actually, that is a part of it to be rescued, but it's to draw to oneself. So for you to be delivered is for him to draw you back to him. And that's hence why the voices need to be removed those voices that are seeking to divert a perverse spirit behind it, to seduce, to waylay, to interrupt you from the path that God intends for you, that's what's at stake. So the Lord's Prayer is, you've probably said it thousands of times, you can repeat it as a ritual, But there is still at its core something so available to you as a picture of deliverance, daily deliverance from those voices. And that is by wisdom and knowledge, fear the Lord. Isaiah 33, 6. I'm going to end this. But I just wanted to, I just felt like just to paint a picture for you of people in covenant, the birthright of which was intimacy with God, where it's only his voice. And I was actually reading in Genesis 15, verse 1, and, and this is with Abraham after defeat of kings to rescue his nephew Lot. And it says this in Genesis 15, 1, and Melchizedek had come down as well as the king of Sodom. And he says this, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And what struck me about that, I was trying to just hear what God was saying. But what struck me as interesting is that the first words out of his mouth, the Lord, do not be afraid. And okay, that's a normal thing to say. But he had just defeated kings in the battle and reaped the reward. And even in a place of victory, the first words out of the Lord's mouth was, Do not be afraid. And I think that is reflective of just the human condition that fear is ever present. Fear is ever present even amidst your latest victory, your latest triumph, your latest success, what dominates the minds of people is their future is yet unsecured. Where shall your help come from? I think that's just a normal part of our experience. And I just felt to pray for you for that. That's it. So if you would just close your eyes. And we'll we'll end it here. And as part of this, I'm just gonna read a psalm to you. And my whole goal in this time of speaking with you, and I'm trusting that it's only the Lord's voice that you are starting to hear. That every other voice is now quieted and it's only his. And from Psalm 121 it says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. That is his words to you. So Lord, I thank you. I just thank you. for the people in covenant with you and you with us, I just thank you. And I pray for us, for your people, Lord, that you would be with them, that your voice would ring true and only your voice. And even now, I just say in the name of Jesus, you quiet every other voice. You shield them from any other thought that would seek to distort your truth. I thank you, Lord. Amen.